Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Save the Nation on ADH-TV. I'm David Flint. The program is produced by Charlie Noble. And I'm delighted today to have as our guest John Ruddock, who is now the leader of the Liberal Democrats in New South Wales, now I think the Libertarian Party. Welcome, John. Hello, David. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. John, I remember particularly in your maiden speech when you, not only when you were taken down subsequently from one of the television platforms, to your great advantage apparently, but I remember during your speech the line that we liberal democrats, we libertarians are plotting to take over everywhere and when we take over we will be leaving you alone and I thought that was an absolutely wonderful line. Is that still your position? Well, oh yes, we're plotting to take over the world so we can leave you all alone. So <laughs> the reason libertarianism is is not a sort of a a major threat to people. Okay, like people fear that if we get a really, you know, left wing government, that they might end up putting their political opponents in jail. And people fear if we get a really right wing government, they might end up putting their po uh, political opponents in jail. With libertarianism, everyone can everyone can rest easy. When we take over, uh, there's going to be a much much less government intrusion in people's lives. So everyone everyone will be happier. So you won't be telling people whether they can have gas or electricity. No, we'll absolutely. Be we believe in a all of the above energy policy. So we believe in every. We believe in having. We, the key thing is we believe that government should not be in the energy market. We believe it should be run by the private sector. And we believe that all energy forms should be on the table and they can compete. And, and look, and if people want to run a campaign, people that run renewable energy, if they want to run a campaign saying, look, you should use our energy, yes, it might be a little bit more expensive, but we're saving the planet. Now, if people can make that case to the consumer, good, let them do it. Uh, but we just think whenever the government gets involved, it makes things worse. Okay, and so we can so we can have much lower energy prices. We can have all this energy angst behind us if we just get the government out of the way. I think that's true. I, in in that book uh, that you mentioned on another occasion that I wrote, I think I made the observation that there is no significant problem in Australia, which, if it were not created by the politicians, 
has not been made significantly worse by the politicians. And by that I meant the mainstream politicians. Uh, I think that would be reflected in the position of the Libertarian Party, would it not? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and what, what happens is the people that get attracted to politics overwhelmingly have a messiah complex where they think that they are smarter than the average person and that they know how to move the pieces of the chessboard around to everybody's benefits. But the truth is, is that society, you know, in the 21st century is highly complex and individuals are, uh, you know, motivated for self, uh, self-advancement. And, and if we just let the people alone, then, you know, it's like what Adam Smith said, you know, three centuries ago, the invisible hand of the free market will lift everybody up. That is the story of the last several centuries where we've had more free market, we've had more human dynamism and achievement. And, and so people all around the world want to live in countries which have traditionally had, you know, a smaller state than others. So, uh, <clears throat> but there's always, there's always another great cause around the corner. Now, of course, it's global boiling. I don't call it global warming. I it's now global boiling. Um, Good for you. <laughs> there's always a great cause on which these little messiahs can save us all. And this is the latest one, global boiling. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I was having a discussion, and you know, I, I never, I never used climate change. They rebadged it from global warming to climate change, but now I stuck with global global warming because I thought, okay, you're just trying to sort of, you know, this is a marketing ploy. Now, calling it global boiling is also a marketing <laughs> ploy, but it's one that I will endorse because it is so patently ridiculous. It's the same, isn't it, with between uh, sex and gender? I try to avoid gender because I think that's a grammatical term and it's only being done to suggest that you can change your sex, which you can't. I prefer to use sex. Yes, yes, that's right, yes. We want, we want, uh, it, it's black and white. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, people can, you know, you know one, of the, one of the great libertarian thinkers was Ayn Rand who I'm quite a fan of. And, and, and Ayn Rand, you know, she wrote a lot of books and she was a very deep philosopher. She, was, she wasn't really an economist, but she was a libertarian philosopher. And I think I'm very impressed with her. But she summed up her philosophy in three very short words. A is A. Uh, you know, reality exists. Now, we can try and deny it. We can try and say A is B, uh, but then that will only result in misery. A is A, and uh, you know that 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 is the, the the foundational principle. We've got to accept that reality. John, you're a man of uh, a wide range of interests, and you don't just rest on those. You do something about them. I remember you were the first man that I knew who was supporting Donald Trump. This was before the 2016 election, and uh, when I read. Trump's speech at Gettysburg, I thought, well, John is right. His agenda, even if he achieves half of it, will be a great change in what is the principal power within the West and provides the president as the leader of the West as a very important position. But more recently, we've, uh, we've seen a campaign against Donald Trump and the latest is the indictment in Georgia and the the mugshot, I call it the Mount Rushmore mugshot, the Mount Rushmore mugshot, because it looks like 
It looks as though it's a draft for another statue at Mount Rushmore. Uh, what's your view about what's happening to Donald Trump and about the next election in the United States? Well, with the Republican Party had a, 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 cont <clears throat> a contested presidential primary in 2008 and in 2012. John McCain ended up winning in 2008 and Mitt Romney ended up winning in 2012. Now, but the interesting thing about those two races is is that the polling leader changed a lot. So in 2012, at one point, um, Newt Gingrich was, was miles in front, but then he fell over. Uh, and then there were Herman Cain in 2012, who I was very impressed with. And eventually, but, it, but it eventually Mitt Romney won, but it had gone up and down, up and down, you know, through the debate. And there's, you know, think that good and bad things happen. <clears throat> now, from the moment Donald Trump contested the 2016 uh, Republican primary, he simply shot to the lead and it never changed. Might have been a little bit of variation here and there. He shot to the lead after the first debate and it was never in any doubt. I mean, Ted Cruz tried and a few others tried, but they, they were just, they were just uh, you know, irritants on the side. Now, exactly the same thing has now happened in 2024. Trump's in front, and I'm just talking about the Republican side. Trump's in front, and Trump's lead is unassailable. So people have been getting excited about Vivek, who I think is an impressive young man, uh, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Ron DeSantis. It's all a waste of time. Trump's won the primary. He, he nothing. Are they going to come up with a campaign-ending scandal for Trump? I don't think so. They've thrown absolutely everything that they can anyway, and he's still miles in front. Now, all of these indictments, which are clearly politically motivated, are helping Trump. And the reason why I say there's absolutely zero doubt that this is all about politics and not the law is two things. Why weren't these indictments brought two, three years ago if they were so important? Why have they appeared right now in the middle of the presidential, uh, presidential uh, uh, voting season? And, and they, you know, they, they've got this thing in Georgia. Uh, he, Trump's going to be in court the day before Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday is March next year. It's the most important date in the presidential calendar, uh, besides election day itself. And yeah, they're going to they, and, and they've, they've timed it all. There's these four separate cases so far, and that's all coming to an head now. So, firstly, it should have happened, you know, two or three years ago if it was about the law, and secondly. Had Donald Trump announced after the 2020 presidential election, he says, look, I'm retiring from politics, I'm going to go and write my memoirs, but I'll never run again, I'm off the political scene, the left would have breathed a sigh of relief and they would have said, oh, well, let's leave him alone. He's not a threat, let's go and demonise the next Republican candidate. So what we have is this is uh, the Democrats' campaign by using lawfare against the, uh, Republican, the Republican Party frontrunner. Now I just I am in, I'm relieved to see that Middle America is swinging back to Trump. There's been <laughs> since the since the Georgia indictments last week. There's been three or four national polls. Trump's ahead of Biden uh, when they have a head-to-head -head contest. So I think we are witnessing a, an extraordinary moment in history. I think that Trump has a reasonable chance of winning. Um, I think that they'll, cut, they'll, they'll try and come up with something again like COVID to justify the mail-out ballots, which is where all the corruption took place. 
Uh, and I think that, you know, these people are so power mad and they are definitely prepared to cut corners wherever it takes to bring down Donald Trump. So I think I think Trump's got to win 55% of the legitimate votes for him to actually win. That's what I think it's got to happen. And I think that uh, he just might pull that off. I don't know if you could see it, uh, John, but we were showing the Mount Rushmore mugshots actually on Mount Rushmore. Uh, while you were speaking. But it seems to me the Democrats are shooting themselves in the foot, aren't they? Uh, Constantly in trying to protect Biden. Uh, Senator Cruz made the point that the indictments seem to always follow whenever some additional evidence is produced in the House in relation to the corruption of the, what they're calling the Biden crime family when Biden was vice president and the, the money they were getting from various uh, foreign influences, uh, including from Beijing, in relation to getting access and influence in Washington. Uh, well, one thing I'll say, you know, the, the Bill and Hillary Clinton set up the, uh, the Clinton Foundation, which was very successfully marketed around the world as a magnificent charity. And foolish, uh, uh, well, people like Tony Abbott and John Howard, generally good prime ministers, foolishly fell for it and gave hundreds of millions of Australian dollars to the Clinton Foundation. And people thought, (laughs) we're stopping AIDS in Africa. We're educating women in uh, Haiti and everything. No, 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 no. 90% of money that went to the Clinton Foundation went into their pockets one way or another. Barely anything went. In fact, they didn't even run any any, any charities. The Clinton Foundation just made donations to two, two real charities for the, for the 10% that didn't end up in their pocket. But you have to give the, the Clintons credit for at least they were crooks and they were corrupt and they were using their influence you know, to, to enrich themselves, uh, but at least they had the brains and the sophistication to dress it up behind a charity. Now, the Bidens, don't, they lack that sophistication. They want it, they want it, they've been out there basically, they're just doing corruption the boring old way. Basically, they're a brown paper bag way, you know. I'll do you a favour, you give me money. And they, you know, they went around to all the worst countries in the world and he found people who wanted to do that deal. And uh, <clears throat> now they've got the, the Republican, uh, one of the, the, the House uh, Oversight Committee or the Judicial Committee or something, they've subpoenaed bank documents from multiple of the Biden family members and so far they've got together incontrovertible evidence that there was 21 million US dollars donated from foreign regimes to the Clintons, uh, sorry, sorry, to the Bidens. There was no, no middleman of a, uh, a, a charity in between. And they've got this. Now, what's happening is, is that the, the mainstream media, this has been obviously reported a lot in the non-mainstream media, in which I include Fox News, but the rest of the media is just pretending that this is not happening. So it's a, it's, uh, you know, it's a, a lot of people aren't aware of it, but I think Look, I think the traditional media is getting more and more partisan because they are losing control, the control that they used most of our lives, David. There's been very few media outlets. Now there's a billion media outlets. And so the the traditional media, which we always knew leaned left, but they tried to present that they were nonpartisan, but they would steer people to the left. But now their power is eroding because of the rise of social media and alternative media. And so I think that they are just 
now their, their partisanship is just becoming more and more brazen. Uh, I was speaking to uh, Adam Crichton from, uh, he's the, as you know, the Washington correspondent of The Australian, and he agreed with me that uh, what's happening in the United States shows the superiority of our Westminster system in relation to executive government. It shows the advantage of cabinet government, but it also shows in the American system, you can't get rid of a president, even one as bad as Biden, even one as corrupt as Biden, one who is obviously losing as much as Biden, you can't get rid of him. No president has ever been got rid of unless he went voluntarily. And the other thing is, once you get rid of a president, you're locked into whoever is the vice president, whereas in the Westminster system, you make a decision afresh. And I think the example, the best example of this is when Chamberlain had to give way to Churchill and it went so smoothly and quickly and it didn't cause any problem. You couldn't have a transfer of power from a Chamberlain to a Churchill under the American Republic. Look, I think it's a very interesting observation. You know, there is something about the constitutional monarchy. Uh, having, having at the apex of our political structure a monarch who, you know, only once in a century will use their power, but, you know, with a dismissal or whatever, but just having their presence in the system to a large extent keeps people under control I mean, in terms of people don't get too dictatorial. They don't go too, they can't push things too much because they know at the end of the day there is an impartial uh, umpire at the top of the, at the top of the power structure. Now, even though it's not something that most people think about much, subconsciously in the, in, a, in the Westminster system, we just know that if you go too crazy in your grab for power, well, there's someone there that can dismiss you. What we're seeing in the United States uh, is, you know, is, there, is there's no sort of cap to how sort of how far people can push their presidential politics. And, uh, yes, I, I do wish that uh, somehow that the... Uh, you know, that the Americans had found a way to, <clears throat> you know, uh, I, I, I blame King George III, David. I mean, he was a, he, he was in many ways a good monarch, but he was not good to the British colonies of North America. There could have been a better way to sort it out, which I think most of the American founding fathers were initially, you know, uh, up for. They wanted a constitutional monarchy, but the King George pushed things too far. But we are, we are look, I, we are seeing a repeat of Rome, the great Roman Republic, was, uh, you know, was very successful for four centuries. And then by the time they get to about 150 BC and they're complete dominate, dominating the, the, the Mediterranean world and beyond, uh, so, that, you know, they, um, they then started having internal political conflicts that went on for a century and a half. And it feels like, you know, after America won the World War I, World War II, and then the Cold War, most importantly, and we re used to refer to the unipolar world. Well, uh, unfortunately, what we're seeing is politics is um, America, and we're, we, we all live in the wake of America. Um, you know, they, they are, the bitterness, the internal bitterness is, is, is really upsetting and it's on a bad trajectory. And the way in which the American mainstream press, mainstream media, have abandoned the role of the media and they've just become the propaganda arm of the Democratic Party. 
Uh, yes, that's the, yes. And look, it's similar in this country. The, the press is um, the press is just so partisan these days. Well, they uh, gave, they know, gave we, Barnett, we yes, they gave uh, they gave the prime minister, Mr. Albanese. They gave him the longest honeymoon I can ever remember. Well, well, Mr. Rudd had two years of honeymoon. Oh, did he? I've forgotten, Mr. Rudd. Oh, uh, yes, yes, Mr. Rudd had two years, and then, it, and then it was there for a brief period. He had higher popularity ratings than Bob Hawke ever had. Uh, but then it fell off a cliff very, very quickly, David, yes. Tony, uh, because the guy had no substance. Yes. Tony now, Abbott, Albo, <coughs> Tony Abbott, and uh, well, John Albo, Howard. Tony Abbott and John Howard had negative honeymoons, and that's a good thing. I really think when the press is unfair to you, I think it makes Middle Australia more sympathetic to you. It's not <laughs> a bad thing to get beaten up by the media, um, and. Um, particularly when it's unfair. Yes. Now, now, Mr Rudd fell off a cliff in his popularity after two years. Albo had just over a year until the press are now starting to give him, you know, he's having his stumbles. And I think a big part of that is he's just, he's gone way out on a limb on this, uh, this voice situation. I'd just like to make a quick comment on that. Now, now I think we're, we're heading for a, you know, pretty convincing victory for the no team. Nobody wins out of this referendum. The country is being divided over race. He should have, Albanese should have caught it off uh, when he could see that it was going to lose because it's going to, you know, it's not going to be, it's not going to be a good thing for the country. But, you know, when the, when the, the, the Liberal Party figures all around the country only really got on board, we're hearing a lot from Tony Abbott, John Howard and Peter Dutton now, they only got on board when the polls went south. Now, earlier this year, the polls were saying 65% of Australians intend to vote yes. And there was, a, a, you know, it was, the, it was the minor parties on the right, like the Liberal Democrats or the Libertarian Party and the UAP and the One Nation. Even when the polls were saying, yes, it's going to win, we were out there, you know, campaigning and saying, no, we don't want a race-based constitution. And then we had, you know, uh, outlets, outlets like ADH TV and Spectator, etc. We're campaigning against it regardless of the polls. Now what we're seeing is with the Liberal Party, you know, you know, the National Party and the Liberal Party of West Australia both came out and said, well, we endorse yes, we endorse yes. Okay, when the polls said yes, and now the polls have turned, now they're both officially endorsed it, okay? How much more unprincipled can you get? I do have to pay tribute to Mark Speakman, who's the Liberal Party opposition leader in New South Wales. He's come out and said that he's personally pro-yes. Well, okay, I disagree with him, but you can't accuse him of being poll-driven. You know, I think I think he's just that's genuinely what he believes. So, um, you know, so that that that's one positive. But the bottom line is the Liberal Party is so weak, okay, and they they will just follow the polls, and that that's what we're seeing now. And the people that really turned this around, uh, you know, were the people who were out there making the case when the polls weren't good. Now, also Jacinda uh, 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 Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine have been absolutely magnificent yes. leaders of this campaign. And they've both got hearts of gold. They're both very likable people. To, if you see them on the news, and and if we if the no campaign is going to win, it will be because of those two terrific people. Yes, they are excellent, and it, it is so good to have people who are Aborigines campaigning against this proposal. Uh, I did contact you for this interview concerning another matter, 
And that relates to something which happens every so often, and that's when an Australian politician, and in this case it was in reaction to a statement by a New Zealand politician, a retiring New Zealand politician, Barnaby Joyce, supporting the idea of New Zealand becoming a state of Australia. Uh, and I, I think you might have a view on that, John. Well, in the, the 1890s is the most fascinating period of Australian history. And that's the decade where we sort of uh, agreed to do two things. We agreed to become independent of Britain. And then we also then agreed very, very you know, we sort of think of federation as just one event. But in fact, it was two distinct events. There was separation from Britain and independence. Then there was the question of, well, what do we do post-independence? Should we just be seven little countries, including New Zealand, or should we unite into being one big country? And New Zealand did attend the first couple of those intercolonial meetings and discussions about what, in the early 1890s about whether we should all become one country. I think there was a delegation from Fiji as well. Now, then New Zealand rightly said... Early on in that process, they say, look, thank you very much for the invitation. I think that we'll, we'll go uh, our own way. Now, as a result of that, New Zealand is quite a dynamic country, okay, and they're, they're, they're proud, proud people. And, yeah, <clears throat> I fear if they had become the seventh Australian state, if they were just uh, governed essentially by Canberra, I don't believe New Zealand would be what it is and it wouldn't be as successful as it is today. Now, I think this also opens up the question, uh, you know, David, I'm, I'm keen to say on your show today, I am very open to a discussion around de-federation. Now, you wrote a, a terrific book that really shaped my thinking about 10 years ago with our friend Jai Martinkovic called Give Us Back Our Country. And that really made the case for states' rights, was one of the many good points you made, but uh, you said, you know, we, we, uh, our founding fathers did not envisage Canberra running everything. There was a few limited things like defence and foreign affairs and a few other things that the Commonwealth would look after. But the, very much the assumption in the 1890s was is that the states would largely be run their own affairs, run their, particularly their fiscal affairs, their taxation rates. What's happened is with the central government, <clears throat> central governments always find an excuse to grow. So we had during World War One, we were told, <clears throat> oh, well, the Commonwealth needs to levy an income tax because we're at war, but it's just going to be temporary. So the war comes and goes, but the tax stays around. Now, a similar thing happened with company tax in World War Two. We were told, oh, well, look, the Commonwealth needs to levy a company tax, but it's just a temporary thing. Of course, we've still got company tax. Now, what's happening here now is, is that we do not really have state governments in this country because the states get something like three quarters of their revenue from the federal government. The federal government increasingly is running everything. Now, Australia is a very, very big place. And to think that a little town in the, you know, the ACT uh, can set policy that is the same for Launceston and for Broome and for Kalgoorlie and for Parramatta is absurd. Now, I'm thinking I want to go one step further than your book about, you know, getting back to what was the original vision of a strong states' rights federation, I think we could be much more successful and prosperous if we actually became six separate countries. Now, we could have a, defensible, uh, a mutual defence pact 
Okay, but the the great the biggest benefit beneficiary of this will be that we can have competition around industrial relations laws about taxation, company taxation, individual taxation, regulation. The states will have to compete with each other about who can have the lowest taxes. Now, I like to give the example of, let's say, a very big American company like Amazon makes a decision that they're going to invest $5 billion in a new plant in Australia. That's a lot of money, a lot of jobs, a lot of opportunity. Now, at the moment, when a big company like that decides to invest in Australia, as they tend to do, uh, they say, oh, well, we're going to go to Sydney or Melbourne. Yeah, almost all the time. We're going to go to Sydney or Melbourne because that's where our executives want to live. Okay. But if we if we had defederated, Tasmania could go to Amazon and say, hey, look, <clears throat> invest your $5 billion here in Hobart and we won't charge your company tax for 10 years. And Amazon's going to say, well, that's a deal. We're coming to Tasmania. That would make Tasmania come alive. Something like 50% of people in Tasmania derive their income from the government, whether it's welfare or whatever else. That's really, really high. Tasmania is a beautiful little place and it's got so much potential. I think Western Australia would be unleashed if it could set its own, set, have its own laws. I think Western Australia's got so much potential. And I think I think all we could be all richer. We could all still love Australia. We love the continent of Australia. But if we if we all had our own foreign policy, um, uh, uh, we we could become much much stronger. Now, if we had the mutual defence pact, and all the six nations that are currently in the Commonwealth become significantly richer and stronger themselves individually, well, it means that our defence will actually be stronger because we'll have more resources. Well, I uh, I had to give the vote of thanks in Perth a few years ago, and I commiserated with the West Australians because of the way they're treated. And apart from they were being very badly treated in the rugby union at the time, they, they weren't allowed to have a club in the, or team in the rugby union. But apart from that, one of the ways in which they were being disadvantaged was when the GST, remember the GST was introduced to replace taxes, state taxes. The High Court had suddenly decided that state taxes state uh, taxes on goods were no longer constitutionally valid. It took, uh, took about 80 years after Federation to realise that apparently. And they introduced the GST. But what they did, what the Commonwealth did when they introduced the GST was introduced something, and when they do something as they do with, uh, with energy, they use words which nobody understands. So they don't understand what they're getting at. It's horizontal fiscal equalization. And what it meant was you, when you distributed the GST, you didn't give Western Australia all the GST collected in Western Australia. What you did was you, you had to work out uh, which states weren't able because of their income to give equal services to Western Australia or whatever other states there were. And you give more to states which were failing, to states which were being very successful. So Western Australia, which is very successful because of its mineral wealth, had to have, didn't get all its GST. At one stage, they were only getting a, a very small percentage of their GST. And I thought that was so unfair and so wrong and so contrary to the principles of federation. And I, I didn't talk about this in my speech, but I, I did some back of the envelope calculations afterwards. And I came to the conclusion that if Western Australia had succeeded in seceding 
in the 30s they attempted to, if they were a separate country, they would be easily one of the richest countries in the world because they have enormous wealth, remarkable wealth, mainly mineral, and they have a very small population. <laughs> you, just, you just work out the, uh, the uh, per capita GDP, it would be tops in the world. They would be a very rich country. And, and they could still be just in their infancy now about how it really could become a golden state. I think, I think all the states, if they could uh, <clears throat> run their own affairs, would be so much more successful. There hasn't been, I can't remember one state election in this country where the Premier and the opposition proposed a tax cut, okay, because they don't really do much in taxation. They do payroll tax, a bit of gambling, stamp duty is a big one, but they basically get their money from a big cheque from Canberra every year. Now, we should be having state elections where the opposition leader gets up and says, vote for us because we're going to cut your taxes, okay? Or maybe the, the Premier wants to say, vote for us because we're going to raise your taxes. We, we don't even have that debate. We can, we can be dynamic and learn from each other. So Victoria might come out with a fantastic um, education policy and we can, we, can, we can learn from that and Queensland can learn from that. What's happening now is with this federation, we're not even really a federation. We are, we, Canberra is running everything. And even t Tony Abbott, when he wrote his books, Battle, Battle Lines, you know, 15 years ago, he was saying, oh, well, yeah, the federation's not working, at least in, in the first edition. I think he might have changed it to the mm. second edition. In the first edition, he said, he said, oh, well, look, it's not working. So, look, Canberra should just run everything to do with education and health. No, it should be the complete opposite. Now, now you know, the, you know the most significant Australians who have ever lived, okay? It's not, uh, you know, Joseph Banks was a very important person for this country and uh, Captain Arthur Phillip was obviously important and Robert Menzies was a very significant Prime Minister. The most, but the, the, what the person that I say is easily the most significant Australian who have ever lived is Alfred Deakin. Uh, now, he's largely forgotten today because he had a weirdo personality. He was the driving force behind Federation, okay? And, and then we had the magnificent George Reid in New South Wales who was, you know, very wary about Federation. He says, look, New South Wales is a free enterprise state. We like our low taxes. We like our free trade. And we very much fear that this Federation thing will result in a federal takeover of everything. And that's exactly what's happened. George Reid was right. But the, the really fanatical little guy, and he was very intelligent, Alfred Deakin, uh, and a very great speaker, but he was one of these political people who just sort of almost doesn't sleep. They're like a robot. They just work incessantly. And all he wanted was he wanted to be remembered as the great figure that put together the Federation. Now, I know that Henry Parks is largely remembered as the father of Federation. He didn't play a very big role, and there's another, you know, if Henry Parks was doing it for political reasons, uh, you know, and I think he died in the, the first half of the 1890s. Now, it was Alfred Deakin that ran the whole thing, and Alfred Deakin was somebody that we would actually call him a teal voter today, David. He was somebody who was a lefty, but he thought he was too sort of upper class to hang around with uh, <laughs> uh, trade union members. And he, um, he wanted, he just loved the idea of there being a big, powerful government and that so that he could run it. And that he, he was the most significant prime minister we had in the first 10 years. He's, if he wasn't the prime minister in the first 10 years, he was the puppet master of who was the prime minister. There was about six or seven prime ministerships in the first 10 years. 
and he was involved in all of them. Um, now, so he was basically, he got us on the, off to the wrong track. Now, I just look back and I think, you know, look, if we had all done what New Zealand had done, well, we love New Zealand. We have a free immigration program with New Zealand. They, they can come and go. We can come and go there. That's good. Nobody's got any complaints about that. You can be born in the South Island of New Zealand and come over here and get the old age pension. That's fine. We can do all that stuff. But New Zealand has been able to run its own affairs without being dictated to by Canberra. So I think it's a, a discussion that we have not had. You mentioned the Western Australian secessionist vote, which was the people of Western Australia did vote in the 18th, 1930s to leave the Commonwealth. And then I think uh, London said, well, you know, <laughs> that's something that the Commonwealth will have to sort out. And they did they weren't interested that there was a change of government in Western Australia. But anyway, they did vote for it. But we're not even, I'm not really even talking about secession. I'm talking about the six the six states having a constitutional convention, coming to the agreement, look, we're all going to be better off if we can sort of uh, we'll still be family, of course. We're always bound by our geography and our shared culture and everything. But if we can run our own affairs, we're all going to be much, much more successful and we would then defederate. Well, John, I would agree with defederation to the extent that we should change the way we are federated or go back to the original intention, uh, which was to create a federation. It's not a federation now, you're right. Not when the, not when the fed central government is collecting about 80% of all the taxes, handing half of that back to the states and telling the states how to spend that money. That's not a federation. No other federation in the world operates like that and you're right to criticise it. The, the, the difficulty is we've now trained people to believe that if there's a problem in this country, the solution is always a uniform solution and throwing a lot of taxpayer money at it. It's a uniform solution. And even if Canberra is not to legislate, all the states should have the same legislation. And that, of course, is not how a federation works. And I think the best example, and I put it to you, that the best example which demonstrated how a federation should work was when Sir Joe Bielke-Peterson, against the advice of his treasurer, against bureaucratic advice, decided to get rid of a terrible tax, which is death duties. I was uh, working in a law firm as an article clerk, uh, and uh, I thought that the very worst tax you could ever have is one which was suddenly imposed when, for example, uh, a farming family or a small business family, the, the, the chief person in that family and in the business died, they'd have all the the terrible sorrow of the death, the passing away of the uh, person who quite often established the whole enterprise. But suddenly then they'd receive a bill from uh, the state government charging them about a third of the value of the property. And how, do, how can you raise that sort of money? It was a, an atrocious tax. And Sir Joe abolished it. He decided he would abolish it. Suddenly, all these people moved to Queensland because for some reason they didn't want to leave a good portion of their estate to the state government and uh, the way to do it was to move to Queensland and within a short period of time every state followed Sir Joe. He was, a, I think, a magnificent Premier in doing that and I think it really shows the solution. What do you say to that? Uh, well, David, that, that is 
a very successful demonstration of the power of a, what a true federation would look like, where we, you know, one state went out and innovated and you know, reduced taxes and became attractive and the other states copied it. But that is one success. True. Uh, for, and there's been a hundred sort of uh, negatives uh, at the same time. The reason I think we should put defederation on the table is this is that if we say, look, well, let's go back to what we originally envisaged in 1901, a very small federal government. History tells us these things always grow. Now, when the Americans got their independence from the British in the 1780s, uh, the, the, and even when they set up the constitution in the late 1780s, the percentage of the GDP that the federal government took of the people of America, the 13 states, was 1% to 2% of the GDP. That's what originally started us. And we would think, well, that's good. That's what it should be. But here we are now, almost 250 years later, and we've got this huge leviathan called the, 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 Washington, the Washington bureaucracy. And this is absolutely not what people envisaged, but you know, governments keep, cannot, keep, cannot help themselves to keep growing. Now, conservatives like yourself and myself look back at Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s and we think, gee, didn't they do a fantastic job? Well, they did do a fantastic job, but here we are only 30 years later and we've got, you know, taxes and regulation and everything else is worse than ever. So even when you have the two very best leaders we could have in the American system would be Ronald Reagan, the very best in the Westminster system would be Margaret Thatcher. But even, even after all the good things they did, give it a quarter of a century later and we're, and we're back to where we were. So this is why I think that we would, uh, you, know, you know, if you look at the, a list of all the countries that have the highest per capita income in the world, very often they're small countries, you know, Singapore, Switzerland, Luxembourg, you know, some of those uh, Gulf states, Monaco, little states can sort of very close to the, gov- to the people. The old Milton Friedman principle, the best government is one that is not far away, distant and powerful. It's one that's close to the people. And, and I think that we could, uh, you know, we, we could have a very, uh, just an enormous amount, a, a big uplift in prosperity and civil liberties if we all had uh, governments which were closer to the people. Now, I very much hope that we all remain constitutional monarchies, David, uh, well, uh, in the post-Federation post era. But, of course, that will be, up, that if Victoria wants to become a republic, this will be the quickest way to do it, defederate. I think uh, you're right in relation to the Commonwealth taking over state powers and making a mess of them. The best example is probably education, where the Commonwealth has moved in and uh, the standards in education have fallen and the amount going into education has significantly increased. In fact, our standard is really worrying because the standards of, uh, of literacy and numeracy are well below those of other countries and uh, they're not teaching history anymore, they're, they're just effectively uh, indoctrinating the students. But the villain in all of this, I think, is uh, not only the state politicians but also the High Court. We, we, at the time of Federation, once Federation passed, the new High Court said that there was an implication in the Constitution that those powers not granted to Commonwealth were reserved to the states. 
There's an express power, express provision about this in the American Constitution, only because that was the way they had to negotiate at Philadelphia to get all the states involved. But the reserved powers doctrine lasted till, I think, 1920, and then the High Court dismantled that. But the states have gone, state politicians have gone along with being mendicants, beggars on the Commonwealth because it's so much easier to just put your hand out, collect the money from Canberra and then point at Canberra as the blame for the problems in the states. The mess is made by the politicians and the way to deal with it really is uh, to expand the power of the people, is it not, rather than, well, perhaps it is, to have more, I think we should certainly have more states. But uh, there, there is really a definite need, is there not, to expand what power the people has have over the politicians. Well, in your book, you mentioned you spent quite a bit of time talking about Switzerland. Now, you, you're well known, David, for being a, an ardent constitutional monarchist, but you still praised Switzerland, which is not a monarchy, True. Uh, because it was so decentralised. Switzerland has the same population as New South Wales, about eight million, eight and a half million or something. But you know, within that, within uh, Switzerland, they've then got tw something like 27 cantons or, or states that, that they, you know, so they really, really do devolve power down. Switzerland has got, you know, you were at my maiden speech, I mentioned several things that Switzerland is really doing in an outstanding manner. You know, they've got one of the highest life expectancies in the world. They've got the the lowest murder rate in the world, even though everyone's, almost everyone's got a gun. Uh, you know, they had the, they had the lowest COVID vaccine uptake in Western Europe. I think it was about 59% now. You know, I mean, in Australia it was 96% because they forced it on us. Okay, so it's a very, very, you know, successful country because they've devolved power. So, yes, I think what we could do in the post-defederation era, I would be very happy to then split New South Wales up into, you know, 26 cantons, uh, self-governing cantons and uh, getting power back to the people. The people will flourish. So, uh, look, I, uh, I know it is a radical proposal to discuss Federation. There are lots of little details that would need to be ironed out. But I think the first step is to win the philosophical argument and to convince people that it will be in everybody's interests. I think places like Western, so, uh, South Australia and Tasmania have got enormous potential. South Australia could have its own, if it was running, if it was own, its own country, I think it would say very quickly, yes, well, we're going to have a uh, a uranium mining industry in a big way here. We're going, to, we're going to become the Saudi Arabia of uranium, and that would be a good thing for South Australia. There's so much potential, but these smaller states I, I, I have been very much stunted in their potential because they're run by, effectively, like we all are, run by Canberra. And uh, I think that Western Australia would be unshackled. I think Queensland would be unshackled. Uh, and then, you know, New South Wales and Victoria are already very successful. Uh, but, you know, we, if we can go our own way, we'll be even more successful. We still do have a whole continent to ourselves and we, uh, you know, we have a relatively small population. This is why Australia is a huge success. You know, in the 20th century, when, they, when you say who had what country in the world had the best performing stock market, well, people assume it's the United States. The United States did have the second best performing stock market over the 20th century. Australia had the best performing stock market. Better than the Dow Jones, okay? So that, and that is a very, very important indicator. Uh, and it just shows that the country is growing rapidly. And, with, yeah, and being on the, foot, on the doorstep of Asia, 
used to be a big concern for us in a security sense. Now it is largely a massive uh, commercial windfall for us. We've got it's so terrific to be a, a Western country on the doorstep of Asia, and I think really to fulfil our potential, we do need to have a discussion around defederation. And maybe New Zealand was right in the beginning, David. Uh, John, some countries are fortunate from the point of view of what the Creator gave them. Australia has enormous mineral wealth. Venezuela does too. What mineral wealth does Switzerland have? I don't think they have any. They might have a little bit, but uh, they, <coughs> excuse me, they've, um, they've got an entrepreneurial uh, culture and they've got a, uh, <coughs> you know, they haven't gone and wasted, um, they, they haven't sent their, their, their best young men to go out and get slaughtered on the battlefield for 500 years. So they've uh, been at those, rather than those young men getting killed over a pointless war like World War One, they have uh, stayed behind and built a family and built a business and materially contributed to the next generation. So Switzerland, you know, it's obviously the, a, a, an important banking capital and it does other things, but it's uh, there's so much for us to learn from Switzerland. Another country is Singapore. Singapore, Singapore's GDP per capita is now higher than Australia's. I remember when I first went there, it was newly independent, there was a lot of poverty still. But they're, they're getting very rich, they have nothing in terms of mineral wealth. It won't be long before they're much more wealthy on a per capita basis than we are. And that is an extraordinary shame. And I, own, I blame one class for that. And that is the political class in Australia. I think that they have, they have uh, made us poorer. The politicians are making us poorer and they're now being supported, it seems, by, by those uh, who are running the corporations, the, uh, the new robber barons who, who believe in, uh, what, is, what do they call it? Stakeholder capitalism rather than acting for their shareholders. Uh, yes, it's you know you, you would think that uh, you know there's there's nothing sort of more capitalist than a big multinational corporation. You'd think that the people that work for them, at least the senior management, will be voting for the capitalist parties. But no, 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 they're they're increasingly teal voters. I think to get to be successful in these big corporations, you have to be a very compliant person. You have to you have to accept the hierarchy. You have to sort of you have a very regimented life. And if you put in the effort, you can you know you can end up on a big salary and an important position. But I think that the whole corporation mindset does steer people towards the left, the more sort of regulatory, uh, regimented lifestyle. You know, the the biggest demographic that supports Donald Trump in the United States is even more than, you know, uh, know, white church-going Christians, the biggest demographic is self-employed people. The self-employed people support Trump more than anybody because it's the, it is that entrepreneurial spirit of self-reliance that, that sort of makes people attracted to somebody like Donald Trump. There's also, I think, the fact that religion has declined in importance. And I think man, I mean that in the broad sense, man has a built-in tendency to want to believe. There's a rational side where you make judgments, but there's a side where we need to believe. And in the absence of religion, all of these peculiar ideas which seem to be flooding in from America. They used to come from France, but now they come from America. 
seem to be taking over beliefs in all sorts of uh, things. The obsession with transgenderism, for example, is the latest. And that seems to impact very heavily on the, the ruling class, the elites of Australia. Uh, yes, Lord, there has been a, in the last three generations, a very sharp decline in the church attendance of Protestants. So it is in the Protestant parts of the world, so the English-speaking world, northern Germany and, uh, you know, Scandinavia, where these people have largely stopped going to church. And what that, and I absolutely agree with you that there is this need within the human psyche, at least for most people, to believe in a religious creed. And what, and the country, it is no coincidence that it is in the countries that were once Protestant majority and who've now largely abandoned it, they are the countries that most believe in global boiling. <laughs> they, and, and this has got, there's a lot of overlap in the global boiling dogma, you know, with, with traditional religion. You know, there's, there's an apocalypse, an imminent apocalypse, okay? And there's also, there's a few priests that we need to listen to, Al Gore and Greta Thunberg, and they can't be challenged. And the worst people in the world are the heretics, the people who, the people who doubt the faith, okay? They are the Ian Clivers, the David of Flint. These people are not just wrong, they're evil. Okay, <laughs> and, uh, and there's a very narrow path to tra to salvation. Okay, and, and if and if you and and you can never do enough. You can you, you know even if you you can drive a Tesla, you can do all your carbon credits, you can you know campaign for your local teal. But there's always more to be done, and it's also the, the bottom line is mankind is sinful. That's that's the bottom line of global boilingism. Mankind is bad. That, that, this is what a lot of religion is, is, is based on as well. And so it is, uh, yes, we, we are with, and, yeah, and, and the, another thing is, with the, another overlap is, if you point out rational facts to them, saying, oh, well, look, maybe the world is not actually boiling, okay, maybe the, yeah, we've got this bad hurricane over in, um, in, in Florida. It happens every couple of years, doesn't it, David? It's yes. not it's not abnormal. Okay, it used to have it's been happening for tens of thousands of years yes. in exactly the same part of the world. Okay, but of course, when it happens now, oh, there you go. There's yes. the proof. It's global boiling. Okay, look, there's a hurricane in Florida. Okay, so uh, but you, if you point these rational facts out to anybody, they get upset. Okay, so. Uh, well, we'll just keep plugging away. Hopefully the world will wake up to itself at some point, David. Well, thank you very much for your time. I'm still amused by your adoption of global boiling and with your approval, I will adopt that. Of course, attributing ah, yes. it to you, I think that's a wonderful uh, thing which we must adopt, global boiling. Well, thank you very much and uh, thank you also for agreeing to be the host of the ACM conference on the uh, 9th of October in the afternoon, which is on the future of the Constitution, the future of the Australian Constitution. And uh, it's very well, good of you to host that. And uh, thank you once again, thank you for all you're doing and thank you for being so entertaining and so thoughtful. Uh, so uh, unfortunately we must end, I'm David Flint. Thank you. Thank you. I'm David Flint and it's uh, Save the Nation on ADH-TV. Save the Nation is a program which is produced uh, by my very good young producer, Charlie Noble. 
Thank you so much. Until next time. <laughs>